Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today we have an awesome episode. It's a freaking behemoth. It's anticoagulants, thrombolytics, and antiplatelets all in one. Zach, why on earth did you, <laughs> did you put all these topics together? I know, it's it's a lot. Um, but I really think that a lot of these kind of just nicely blend together. I mean, for example, like one disease could be treated by maybe two categories of these drugs. So I really think it'll work out together. And I think a lot of the complications that they have also are kind of easy to just clump together as well. Couldn't agree more. I think that's going to work out really well for our ninja nerds and, and really have all the information that they could possibly need for this huge topic, but it's going to be a good one. Uh, I'm a little, I'm a little scared. I'm not going to lie. It's, yeah. it's a lot to go over, but again, step by step, we'll, we'll kind of make it happen. Um, just my only warning for all you listening is just make sure that you have no other plans for tonight. <laughs> Uh, grab some popcorn, a, a beverage, and uh, just kick back and enjoy yourself if you're if you're relaxing. Yeah, exactly. Before we truly get into this topic, though, I think the most important thing for you all to do is remember, go on engineer.org, grab your subscription, get your notes and illustrations, really try and truly understand this topic. Don't just try and memorize, but but truly understand it. And I think you will after this behemoth of a topic. Zach, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I'm, I honestly think it's like, to be honest, like if I'm being truly honest, I think it's absolutely necessary um, that you guys really go to, you know, check out our notes, our illustrations, because if you're listening along, we're going to cover so much information that it might just kind of like fall back, you know, right past the brain pan. And you might kind of lose some of this information. So I really don't want you guys to forget this. So please, please, please get the notes, get the illustrations and follow along with us as we go through this topic. Highly, highly suggest that. Yeah. So I think one of the big things to think about here is when we're talking about, you know, hemostasis is you're trying to stop the patient from kind of bleeding, right? So you're trying to help to be able to generally induce a clot to form. And whenever this happens, there's three primary kind of like steps within hemostasis. One is what's called the platelet plug formation. So naturally when our vessels are healthy, they're not really kind of like having any degree of injury or disease process, they're making a lot of what's called prostacycline nitric oxide. And one of the cool things about that is that kind of keeps the platelets inactivated, keeps them sleeping, prevents them from sticking to the vessel wall inducing platelet kind of clumps to form. But if the vessel is injured for whatever reason, or it's abnormal, or it's dysfunctional, in that situation, what happens is you don't have that prostacycline production as much and the nitric oxide. So now the platelets are kind of like a little bit more activated. On top of that, whenever vessels are injured or dysfunctional, they can make a lot of what's called von Wildebrandt's factor. And what that does is that sticks to different components of the actual underlying parts of the endothelium, like the collagen. And what that'll do is that'll really attract platelets. Like platelets will be like, mm-mm, von Wildebrandt factor. And it'll start going and moving towards the von Wildebrandt factor and actually kind of click and connect with it. And then it'll actually do that via a lot of different proteins. I don't think that's relevant. But once it sticks with the von Wildebrandt's factor, what it will do that is relevant, it'll start secreting a lot of like other molecules. So things like ADP, it'll release things like thromboxane A2 and serotonin. And what some of these will do, especially thromboxane A2 and serotonin, is will vasoconstrict the vessel. Because if you're bleeding... You don't want a lot of blood to come through that bleeding vessel. So you want to vasoconstrict it and reduce the blood flow through the area. But the other concept is that ADP and thromboxane A2, they're very potent platelet aggregators. In other words, they kind of like 
are kind of like chemotaxis, Rob. So like they'll tell the players, hey, hey, there's some other kind of like injury going on here. Why don't you come over here and stick to us and we'll form a big old platelet plug. So that's ADP and thromboxane too. They're really, really powerful in that sense that they'll really activate the platelets, cause them to come over where other platelets are and stick to other platelets, stick to other von Willebrand factors. And that's kind of the big thing. And then it'll just perpetuate that cycle where one platelet will come stick to another platelet. It'll become activated. It'll release more ADP, more thromboxane to express more proteins. And it'll just be this perpetual cycle until you go from one platelet that's sticking to the vessel wall to thousands of platelets sticking to the vessel wall. And then from that, you'll get this big old platelet plug. What I think is really, really important, though, is what allows for the platelets to really kind of like stick with one another um, is really this protein called uh, GP2B3A. Uh, um, and that's a really important protein. So what happens is when ADP is released and thromboxane A2 is released, it does activate the platelets, but it also increases the kind of expression of those GP2B3A proteins, which really allows for a lot of platelets to stick together and form that big clump. So that's really, really important. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because the platelet plug, we already talked a little bit about ADP. We talked about thromboxane A2, and we talked about another protein called GP2B3A. The reason why I mention that is, is really important. We have drugs that can block specific points of the platelet plug, uh, aggregation and plug. So one is we can block the effect of ADP. So there's a drug category called P2Y12 receptor blockers. And what they do is they basically block ADP from binding onto the platelets. And by doing that, you reduce the formation of the platelet plug and the further formation and the propagation of a clot. What are some of those drugs, you guys might ask? So the P2Y12 blockers, I want you to think about clopidogrel, ticagrelor, prosugrel and teclopidine with primarily all of these being irreversible except for ticagrelor that's the only kind of reversible p2y12 blocker so you don't really want to you know not be compliant with that medication the next thing is what if i block the thromboxane a2 well, I can't really block thromboxane A2, but what if I decrease the formation of thromboxane A2? So thromboxane A2 is actually formed from what's called arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid utilizes a very special enzyme called cyclooxygenase or COX. Keep your minds clear. But what happens is aspirin, which is a very commonly utilized medication, blocks the cyclooxygenase enzyme. And then therefore you won't convert arachidonic acid into thromboxane A2. If you don't make thromboxane A2, you don't tell other platelets, hey, activate and come and stick to other platelets. And then you don't form the platelet plug. You don't allow for the propagation and development of the clot, which is really cool. The other one I told you about that was really important, very powerful. Remember I told you that a lot of the ADP, thromboxane A2, what happens is when you activate the platelets, they do release more cytokines or more molecules like ADP, thromboxane A2, von Wildebrand factor, vibrinogen. But one of the big things is they express what's called GP2B3A, which allows for them to click with other platelets and really form the platelet plug. What if I gave a drug that directly blocked those receptors? <clears throat> and then now if I block those receptors, I can't allow for the platelets to stick with one another. I prevent them from forming a platelet plug and I prevent the formation and propagation of the clot. That would be drug categories called GP2B3A inhibitors. Heck of a name, right? But this is like things like abciximab, eptafibatide, and tyrofibin, which are going to be the primary drugs in this category. There's one more drug category. It's kind of like a rando, to be honest with you. It's what's called PDE3 inhibitors. 
Um, so PDE3 inhibitors are really kind of weird. So what happens is this primarily consists of what's called celostazole and diperidamol. But what happens with these drugs is they inhibit what's called PDE3, which is a phosphodiesterase. That usually breaks down cyclic AMP. If you don't break down the actual cyclic AMP, cyclic AMP levels build up in the platelet. Why is that important? Because high cyclic AMP levels actually inhibit calcium. And if calcium is not high within the cell, it doesn't allow for the platelet to become activated and release ADP, release thromboxane A2, and express GP2B3A proteins. So in other words, it prevents the platelets from sticking with one another, from aggregating, and from forming the platelet plug, prevents the formation and propagation of the clot. So that's going to be that drug categories. So that's for the platelet plug. So, so far, we gave drugs to block the platelet plug. What if I had drugs that would scare the life out of Rob, but could specifically block specific coagulation proteins? So after we form the platelet plug, the next step of hemostasis is causing the blood to become what's called coagulated. In other words, blood should be kind of more of a liquidy type of substance. But whenever you want something to clot and you want to reduce flow through that bleeding vessel, you want it to be less liquid and more kind of jelly-like, so a little bit more thicker, a little bit more viscous, so it flows slowly through there, so you don't have a lot of bleeding out of that vessel. And so the way that I do that is I utilize a lot of clotting proteins. And this is going to be a lot of these things that you guys probably remember from anatomy and physiology, which is your extrinsic and intrinsic pathway. So once the platelets have actually formed the plug on that injured vessel, the next thing that happens is is the platelet surface becomes activated. It becomes kind of like charged, if you will. And it activates a bunch of different factors. I'm going to quickly run through that. It activates what's called factor 12. Factor 12 then activates factor 11. Factor 11 then activates factor 9. Factor 9 and factor 8 combine together to activate factor 10. And then factor 10 will then move into this common pathway, which we'll talk about in just a second. But that's the extra, I'm sorry, the intrinsic pathway. So it's the platelets are form the plug, they're activated, and they activate the intrinsic pathway, which goes 12, 11, 9, uh, 8, and then again, all the way activating factor 10. At the same time, when the, t- the actual vessel is injured, your tissues within the vessel wall actually release something called tissue factor. Okay. And then tissue factor, when it's released, also sometimes referred to as like factor three, when it's released, what it does is it activates another factor moving through the blood called factor seven. When factor three and factor seven are activated, it also activates factor 10, which moves down the common pathway. Now, that's the extrinsic pathway. So we have the intrinsic pathway, which is 12, 11, 9, 8 activating 10. And then we have the extrinsic pathway, which is factors three and seven activating factor 10. Now, once you activate factor 10, here's the common pathway now. Factor 10 then goes and activates thrombin. So it turns what's called prothrombin into thrombin. And then thrombin is a really powerful procoagulant, which will then go and activate something called fibrinogen and turn fibrinogen into fibrin. Now, fibrin is this kind of insoluble protein that loves to stick with platelets. And when it binds with the platelets, imagine it kind of like forming this kind of like really tight mesh network around the platelets that really holds down this clot and really helps to well form that clot and really leads to a big, big stable clot within the injured vessel. And we can cross link that with what's called factor 13. Now, you're probably like, Zach, why why are you telling me all this? 
The reason why is that we use specific anticoagulants to block specific coagulation proteins in that in intrinsic, extrinsic, as well as your common pathway. So what are some of these agents? The first one that I want you to know is heparin. So heparin, there's two types. There's low molecular weight heparin, meaning it has less of what's called a gag, a glycosaminoglycan, and unfractionated heparin. It's got a big old gag, all right? So a big glycosaminoglycan. And what happens with these is what they do is, it's really cool, they bind with something called antithrombin-3. Antithrombin-3 then inhibits, what is the antithrombin-3? It's basically the antithrombin. So it's going to want to block thrombin. So what you'll get from low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin is you're going to activate antithrombin-3. Here's, here's the big problem, though. Whenever you activate antithrombin-3, there's two proteins that it usually inactivates. One is thrombin, and the other one is factor 10. So factor 10 was that big protein that moved down the common pathway. The way that you activate the antithrombin-3, whenever it becomes activated and inhibits factors 10 and, and thrombin, the dependency of which one it actually inhibits is dependent upon the size of the glycosaminoglycan. What the heck does that mean? Unfractionated heparin has a long glycosaminoglycan. So when it binds with antithrombin-3, it allows antithrombin-3 to inhibit two proteins factors 10 and thrombin, whereas the glycosaminoglycan on low molecular weight heparin is smaller. So it only allows for antithrombin-3 to block and inhibit factor 10. So I really need you guys to remember that, okay? So unfractionated heparin, big gag, blocks anti uh, leads to activation of antithrombin-3, which blocks factors 10 and thrombin, whereas low molecular weight binds antithrombin-3, which only inhibits factor 10. If you inhibit factor 10 or you inhibit thrombin, you lead to less activation of thrombin and less formation of fibrin mesh, less formation of a stable propagating formating uh, formation of a clot. So that's why heparin, low molecular weight, and unfractionated can be utilized in those types of clot situations. The next thing is we can use another drug called direct acting oral anticoagulants or direct acting kind of factor inhibitors. With these drug categories, there's going to be two factors that we can directly block. One is going to be what's called um, your rivaroxaban, your, well, your 10A inhibitors. They're blocking specifically factor 10. So that's going to be rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban. I really like these, Rob. And the reason why I like these is because within the name, like rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, you got the X and the A in there in the center of the name. And it kind of tells you its mechanism of action, which is pretty cool. That's a sneaky little way of remembering that. I, I like know. That. I like that's that. That's smart because you'll never forget that. Exactly. Man. So cool. I really like that to help you guys to remember the direct acting oral anticoagulants or direct acting anticoagulants in general. 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban are the primary ones for that one. So to block factor 10, you won't activate thrombin, you won't form the fiber and mesh, you won't allow for the stabilization, formation, and propagation of the clot. The next one is your thrombin inhibitors. And so thrombin inhibitors are going to be basically direct ones. So this is dabigatran, argatraban, and bivalirudin. Now these ones, again, they block thrombin directly. And if they block thrombin directly, they're going to specifically, again, prevent the formation of the fibrin mesh, prevent the formation, propagation, and stabilization of the clot. There's one more I wanted to go back to for a second. So we talked about, again, heparin, unfractionated and low molecular weight, unfractionated blocks two, thrombin and 10, all right, which is cool. Low molecular weight, just 10. And then again, your 
direct acting inhibitors is factor 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban. And then your thrombin inhibitors directly is dabigatran, bivalerin, agatraban. There's one more molecule, which is actually like a synthetic heparin. It's a weird one. It's called fondaparinox. But basically, fondaparinox acts just like low molecular weight heparin. It has no glycosaminoglycan. And so it binds to, um, it actually will, again, help to specifically bind antithrombin 3 and, again, only inhibit factors 10. So that's the big thing. With heparins, they work indirectly to inhibit factors. They bind antithrombin 3, which then inhibits things like factors 10 or thrombin. The only one that blocks both is unfractionated. The ones that block 10 indirectly is low molecular weight heparin and fondaparinox. I hope that makes sense. Real quick, Zach, with, with heparin versus your direct factor inhibitors, what about the route of administration here? How does that differ? Oh, that's a really good question. So I think one of the big things here is that usually with unfractionated heparin, it's usually primarily given IV. Um, and so that's one of the biggest things for this one. It makes it kind of a nicely titratable agent. Um, you can also give it um, in other routes, but I think IV is the most commonly utilized one. A low molecular weight heparin is usually going to be more subcutaneous, but you also can give it IV as well. Um, and then the next one here is going to be your uh, your direct acting anticoagulants. So the 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, that's primarily your PO meds, so oral. So you'll primarily use those as outpatient medications. Whereas heparin, since it's more IV or subcutaneous, it's more likely to be kind of an inpatient medication, but you can use low molecular weight outpatient, especially if you've educated the patient on how to inject subcutaneous injections of the medication. Thrombin inhibitors, it's actually a really good question, Rob, because when we talk about these, the primary one that's actually utilized as an oral med is dabigatran, whereas argatraban and bivalerudin, their IV and their name to fame, we'll talk about them later, is primarily in what's called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So someone's taking heparin, um, and again, heparin is specifically, you know, unfractionated heparin. It's blocking factors 10 and factors are thrombin in this situation. And then they develop this disease called HIT. In that situation, we can't give them heparin anymore, so we alter and go to a different route. And what we found to be beneficial is the direct thrombin inhibitors, such as bivalerudin or agatraban. There's not enough evidence to support the 10A inhibitors, unfortunately, but that's the ways that we would go in utilizing those drugs. How about fondaparinux? So fondaparinux, that one's also, you can give that one subcutaneously as well. That's usually one of the big ones for like a subcutaneous kind of thing. But I, there's, again, other routes. But usually with fondaparinux, um, low molecular weight heparin, unfractionated heparin, I primarily kind of utilize these in an inpatient setting, um, whereas your uh, 10A inhibitors directly um, and your dabigatran, those are more like PO meds that you can do in an outpatient type of setting. That's awesome. And it's really convenient if, you, if you're so used to heparin and now you can take these, I think they're newer medications, right? The direct factor inhibitors. Yeah. So they're, because they're PO, that, that makes it so much more convenient. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, one of the names that they used to have is the kind of like the novel because it was new, um, oral anticoagulants. They've been around for a while now, but again, they're still kind of one of the more newer anticoagulants that came out to the market. And they're very, you know, nice because we'll talk about later. They don't require as much monitoring um, as compared to the next drug that we got to talk about that primarily affects the extrinsic pathway, which is like warfarin, which is the other PO med, but it requires a lot of like, you know, monitoring of particular levels that we'll talk about a little bit later. But I think, again, the big thing to think about with this is that, you know, with these drugs, you see that, again, what specific factors they're inhibiting, that's really, really important. 
with the next one is that we talk about warfarin. So warfarin um, is what's called a vitamin K antagonist. And basically all that means is it, it, it blocks a specific enzyme called vitamin K epoxide reductase. And what that does is, is it inhibits the enzyme from activating and reducing vitamin K. So vitamin K is actually a cofactor, um, <clears throat> or I guess you could actually say a coenzyme more specifically, that's utilized in specific proteins. In other words, if you don't have the vitamin K, the protein won't functionally work as well. And so the proteins that vitamin K is incorporated in, believe it or not, is factors two, seven, nine, 10 and protein C and protein S. So a lot of proteins are formed from this puppy. But if you inhibit vitamin K epoxide reductase, you don't reduce or activate the vitamin K, and therefore you can't incorporate it into the protein structures of factors 2, 7, 9, 10, protein C and protein S. If the primary one that you actually want to remember here is, is factor seven. So factor seven is the most significant out of all of those proteins that I just mentioned that really gets reduced. Do you guys remember which factor seven was involved in the, in the intrinsic or the extrinsic pathway? It was the extrinsic. Because remember, the extrinsic pathway releases tissue factor, which activates factor seven, which then activates factor 10, which activates thrombin, which activates the fiber and mesh. Well, if I have less factor seven, then effectively, I'm going to have less what? Less activation of uh, the factor 10, less formation of thrombin, less formation of the fiber mesh, less formation and stabilization and propagation of clots. And so again, you get the benefit of that with warfarin. But again, you also, you are getting some other anticoagulant, I'm sorry, uh, procoagulants that you're blocking as well, such as, again, factors 2, 7, 9, 10, C, and S. So you will get some other ones besides that. But the big one to usually remember is factor 7. But that would be kind of the uh, drugs that are particularly affecting your blood coagulation. So kind of getting that blood to be a little bit more viscous, a little bit more thick, and really help to stabilize and propagate formation of a clot. The next one that I think is really important here for the third and final step of hemostasis is going to be fibrinolysis or your fibrin kind of like plug. So we form the fibrin mesh, right? When you form the fibrin mesh, which helps to stabilize the actual platelet plug, what happens is you naturally start activating particular enzymes. So once you form the actual fibrin mesh in this big clot, your body starts trying to maybe start slowly dissolving and dissoluting that clot. And the way that it does that is it actually leads to um, what's called the activation of an enzyme called plasminogen. So plasminogen is this protein moving through the blood. And what happens is it becomes activated by what's called tissue plasminogen activator. Tissue plasminogen activator will then convert plasminogen into plasmin. And then plasmin will then go and start digesting and breaking down two particular proteins. One is called fibrin. And so you have less fibrin to actually form. I'm sorry, sorry. One of them is fibrinogen. I apologize. So you can break down fibrinogen. If you break down fibrinogen, you don't have fibrinogen available to make fibrin. And if you don't have fibrin, you don't have the fibrin mesh. And therefore, you don't have the fibrin mesh to stabilize, form, and propagate the clot. The other function of plasmin is to break down fibrin. So it breaks down fibrinogen and it breaks down fibrin. If I break down fibrin, I start kind of dissolving and breaking down the clot. So I start getting rid of a lot of the fibrin that's stabilizing the clot. And you know what else uh, plasmin actually does? It actually breaks apart platelets too. So it really helps to dissolve the clot and break and up the actual clot, which is a really, really kind of like interesting concept when you think about it. So I think one of the big, big things to kind of tell you here is that antiplatelet agents and anticoagulants, they don't break down a clot. 
Did you notice that, Rob? They don't really break down the clot. They don't actually completely dissolve the clot. They just prevent the further formation, propagation, and development of the clot. Whereas thrombolytics, which are going to be specifically targeting this pathway here for plasminogen, that specifically will help to actually activate plasmin and break down fibrinogen and specifically fibrin, which is important for not only helping to stabilize the clot, but also the plasma will break down the, the actual bonds between platelets. And that'll help to dissolve the clot, which is a really important concept. I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that one. I thought they just basically <laughs> go in there and just devour a clot. Yeah, everything is getting broken down. Yeah, so I think that's really important to remember is that really it's the thrombolytics that we're going to talk about in this stage here that not only break down fibrin, um, fibrinogen, which helps involve forming the clot, but it also breaks down fibrin, which is helping to stabilize the clot. But on top of that, th thrombolytics also lead to the dissolution of the platelet plug as well. And so you can really dissolve the clot, which is cool. So how do I actually enhance that fibrinolytic process? I enhanced TPA. So tissue plasminogen activator was the culprit that led to the activation of plasminogen into plasmin. And plasmin is what started breaking down everything within the clot. So if I give drugs that either increase the tissue plasminogen activator, I'll increase the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, break down fibrin, break down fibrinogen, and dissolute or break down the clot. So what are some of these drugs? This is going to be things like altoplase, retoplase, tenecteplase, streptokinase, and urokinase. Real quick, what I want to make sure that you guys understand is altoplase, retoplase, and tenecteplase. When they activate plasminogen to plasmin, they really enhance the plasmin breaking down fibrin. Okay, that's really important. So they break down fibrin, which is important in the stabilization of the clot. It also, if you break down the fibrin, you'll kind of reduce the stabilization of the clot. And on top of that, plasmin will also break down the connections between platelets, so it'll dissolve the clot. Streptokinase and urokinase break, they activate plasmin, and that plasmin breaks down fibrin, which again helps to reduce the stabilization of the clot and then break the connection between platelets. But guess what else it does? It breaks down fibrinogen, which also reduces the formation of clots. With that being said, there's higher risk of bleeding, which we'll get into a little bit later. If you think about that with streptokinase and urokinase in comparison to retoplase, altoplase, and tenecteplase. So that's just one little kind of like tidbit that I wanted to add on there, Rob. But really, I think at the end of it, that covers, in a nutshell, I don't know if it's a nutshell, but um, the three phases of hemostasis and then all the drugs that are altering those three phases of hemostasis. I hope that made sense, Rob. I think it did. I think it did. Um, I'm not going to review all of this. I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm going to take a stab at hemostasis, but I am going to review some of the, the, the drugs and the classes of these drugs, just so you guys got them down pat. So first thing we have is antiplatelets, and this is the one that's going to help to stop the formation and propagation of the platelet plug. These will include aspirin, your P2Y12 receptor blockers like clopidogrel, ticagrelor, Prasugrel and Ticlopidine. And remember, Ticagrelor is that only, only one that's the reversible one. We then have our GP2B3A inhibitors. Man, that's a freaking mouthful. I know, right? <laughs> it really is. The GP2B3A inhibitors include Abciximab, Eptifibotide, and Tyrofibin. And then we have that one last, you know, outlier here, the PDE3 inhibitor, which is Salazazole. The next one we have... Um, are going to be your anticoagulants, and these ones are going to inhibit 
particular clotting proteins like thrombin, factor 10, vitamin K dependent clotting factors, which stops blood from coagulating and prevents the formation and propagation of clot formation. These will include heparin, and then the, the subtypes of that are your unfractionated heparin, your low molecular weight heparin, and that synth synthetic one, that fondaparinox. We then move into your, now we learned that their oral is your direct factor inhibitors, which include your 10A inhibitors. I love these because they're easy to remember now, the, 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 the X and the A. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. You'll never forget that. I That's cool. We've got the rivaroxaban, apixaban, and then edoxaban. And then finally, we have thrombin inhibitors, direct thrombin inhibitors like dibigatran, argatroban, and bivalirudin. Uh, what's next here? Vitamin K antagonist, warfarin. And then our thrombolytics, which just busts up that clot. Yeah, exactly. That's the simplest way of saying it, right? <laughs> <laughs> These include altaplase, retoplase, tenecteplase, urokinase, and streptokinase. I'm noticing a, a trend here, Zach, with the, the place. I know. At least you can get some kind of similarity with you, those you, as well. You can get those down, right? Yeah. You know, at least you'll remember maybe they're thrombolytics. Yeah, exactly. All right. So now, start by taking us through the indications for taking all of these clot-stopping drugs or clot-busting medications. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I think one of the cool things about doing it this way is that a lot of agents are utilized like simultaneously in the same disease process. So I think going over the indications of these with respect to specific systems and the events that can occur in those specific symptoms are very helpful. Uh, for example, let's say that we talk about how can we use some of these agents in neurological events. For example, acute ischemic stroke. So someone just popped a clot into one of their vessels, like their, you know, middle cerebral artery and they developed a stroke. If the time frame, and this is super critical here, is within like less than three and sometimes they even, they'll even go up to four and a half hours from the patient's last known well when they developed a focal neurodeficit, um, you can give them thrombolytics, particularly altoplase is going to be the most commonly utilized one in this kind of category there. The other thing is that um, for these patients, after they've gotten TPA, all right, after they've gotten TPA 24 hours later, you want to reduce the kind of secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, especially in a, a ischemic strokes. Um, and so what we would do is we would actually give aspirin. So aspirin's also going to be indicated in patients who have had an ischemic stroke. If they didn't get TPA, you give them aspirin right away. Um, but that if they did get TPA, you want to wait at least 24 hours and then give them aspirin. So that would be the indications for an ischemic stroke. TPA, um, particularly thrombolytics within three to four and a half hours from last known well, and then aspirin given if they have not given been given TPA immediately, and if they were at least 24 hours post-TPA. All right. The next kind of neurological event would be if somebody has like a DVT of the brain. <laughs> so a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So if they got a clot within one of like their sagittal sinuses of some type, those actually do require anticoagulation. And so generally what we'll do is we'll anticoagulate them with maybe starting off if they're in the hospital with something like heparin. So we can do unfractionated heparin. We can do low molecular weight heparin. It's kind of just preferable based upon provider and renal function and et cetera. Um, but we'll do one of those. And then generally what you'll do is you'll do that for a specific amount of time to get these patients therapeutic, and then you'll transition them over to a oral anticoagulant that they can take outpatient because you can't keep them on an IV um, infusion of these medications long term. So that's what we'll do is we'll start them off on heparin, like again, low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated. Believe it or not, low molecular weight heparin is actually superior, but nonetheless, 
you'll use that to bridge them over to the outpatient world with an oral anticoagulant. So you can do a DOAC that we talked about. So any of the 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, um, you can even consider the thrombin inhibitors as well, um, or warfarin, which is your vitamin K antagonist. The next thing is we go into the cardiac events, and this is like pretty heavy. So there's lots of different things that we can utilize for cardiac pathologies for these agents. So if a patient came in, they had a acute coronary syndrome. In other words, they ruptured a plaque within their vessel and they developed a subtotal or total occlusion of that vessel. So they end up with what's called an unstable angina, instemi, a STEMI. When those patients come in, we can actually start them up on aspirin. So we give them aspirin right away. And then we can also load them up with what's called a P2Y12 receptor blocker. So with that being said, we can give them something like a Pitagril or Ticagrelor or Prasugrel, one of those. And then after that, we could potentially consider, especially if the patient is super high risk um, for decompensating. In other words, they're at risk of cardiogenic shock from their MI. Um, like, for example, their risk of like left heart failure. You could consider giving a patient what's called a GP2B3A inhibitor. So your abciximab, eptofibatide, and tyrofibin if they're going to get a angioplasty and stent placed prior to that. So you'll, whenever the patient comes in with this event, you give them aspirin. You'll give them an antiplatelet, like a P2Y12 receptor blocker. And then after that, if they're going to PCI, they're going to go and get their angioplasty and stent placed, and they're super high risk of left heart failure, you can give them um, an, a GP2B3A inhibitor as well. But generally, we start off with aspirin, a P2Y12 receptor blocker, plus or minus a GP2B3A inhibitor if they're high risk, and then we add on an anticoagulant. Generally, this is usually unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin or fondoparinox, but usually it's heparin of some sort, most commonly because it's easily titratable, unfractionated heparin. So again, acute coronary syndrome, aspirin, then you add on a P2Y12 receptor blocker, plus or minus a GP2B3A inhibitor if they're super high risk and they're getting ready to go to angioplasty and stent getting placed. And you definitely add on an anticoagulant such as heparin. Usually unfractionated heparin is preferred. And the last thing I would say, though, is that there is not as preferred as much as it used to be. Um, you can try to bust open the clot. So, again, what you're doing with these agencies, you're preventing the further propagation and development of clot. And you're going to go in and try to snake a, a catheter into those vessels and open them up and revascularize them. All right. That's the whole point. But. If a patient can't get the revascularization and you need to do it without putting a catheter into their artery, then what you can do is you can give them a thrombolytic to bust up that clot. It's just not as preferred as much as they used to use it, but you can give things like uh, altaplace or tenecteplase or retaplase and again, help to bust up that clot. But generally they say even if a patient did get those, they should still go and get an angioplasty instant placed anyway. But let's say that it's not for acute coronary syndrome. So we covered that one. What if a patient just has coronary artery disease, stable coronary artery disease? In those patients who maybe just had a stent placed and they've had a stent because they have coronary artery disease, we actually highly suggest that the patients get aspirin and an, a P2Y12 receptor blocker for at least 12 months to prevent the thrombosis of that stent. And then after that year of being on dual antiplatelet therapy, aspirin and, you know, a P2Y12 receptor blocker, then you can downgrade to one of them. So whether it be aspirin or whether it be a P2Y12 receptor blocker, you'll continue that lifelong. All right. 
The next thing is what about atrial fibrillation? So atrial fibrillation, the complex, the complication of this is that you can develop a left atrial thrombus. You can develop a clot within the left atrium that can bust off, pop anywhere. It can go up into the brain. It can go up into your spinal cord vessels. It could go to the kidney. It can go anywhere. So with this, we got to reduce that risk of embolic phenomenon. And so we do this based upon two particular processes. Does the patient have mitral stenosis or a prosthetic valve? If they do, this is called valvular AFib. And the only one that's been shown to be beneficial or, you know, truly indicated is a vitamin K antagonist like warfarin. If they do not have mitral stenosis or they do not have a prosthetic valve and they have AFib, we call this non-valvular AFib. And you can give any of them. You can give warfarin. You can also give a DOAC as well. So it doesn't matter which one you give in this particular scenario. It's really just patient preference and it's dependent upon their comorbidities, et cetera. So again, valvular AFib, warfarin, non-valvular AFib, warfarin or a DOAC. It doesn't really matter. One of the big things though is that when a patient is in the hospital and they have atrial fibrillation and they have a complication because of that, like they developed a stroke, we don't often start off right away with warfarin or a DOAC. We usually bridge them to those with a heparin infusion. So whether it be unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin, we'll use one of those and then bridge them over to warfarin or a DOAC. All right, next thing is what if they have a left ventricular thrombus? So now they don't have a left atrial thrombus from AFib, they have a left ventricular thrombus because they had an MI. So they had an MI, when they had the MI, one of the complications is that the one part of their left ventricle isn't contracting and so there's stasis or stagnation of blood there and then they end up with a big old thrombus in their left ventricle. That's still at risk, so they can embolize that sucker up into any vessel. So what we would do is we would treat that the exact same way that we would treat AFib. It's just, in this case, there's no valvular component to it. So we could do warfarin, or we could do a DOAC. And again, if they're in the hospital, it's likely that we'll start off with a heparin infusion to get them therapeutic and then bridge them over to a DOAC or a warfarin. Uh, Whichever choice doesn't really matter. But again, that's the preferable situation as well. So it's kind of similar to AFib, more the non-valvular AFib, where we would start them off with heparin, bridge them over to a warfarin or DOAC. If it's valvular AFib, we give them warfarin. With an LV thrombus, we start with a heparin infusion, and then again, we bridge them over to a warfarin or a DOAC. It doesn't really matter. The last kind of cardiac indication here is if a patient has a mechanical prosthetic valve. So they had an aortic valve replacement for some particular reason because they had aortic regurgitation or aortic stenosis or whatever. They had an infective endocarditis, something of that nature, and they had to replace the aortic valve, and now it's a mechanical valve. Those are super thrombogenic, very high risk of forming clots and then dysfunctioning the actual prosthetic valve or breaking pieces of clots off that prosthetic valve and then multiple areas of the body. So with that one, you treat it the same. Generally, we're going to do heparin, um, so we'll prefer unfractionated heparin, and then we'll bridge them over to the most preferred agent. What did I tell you was the preferred agent um, for AFib, valvular AFib? Warfarin. Well, that's because if they have a prosthetic valve or mitral stenosis, that's why we do it. In this patient population, we have seen that warfarin is the most effective whenever there is a prosthetic mechanical valve. So if they have a prosthetic mechanical valve and you're going to anticoagulate them, you should start off with heparin and then again, bridge them over to warfarin, no DOAC. Okay. And then there's something really interesting is that they've also been shown that aspirin in combination with warfarin really reduces embolic events in patients who have prosthetic valves, mechanical valves. All right, so that covers the neurological and that covers the cardiac events that we utilize these agents for. What about pulmonary events? So I have a big clot with my pulmonary artery and I develop a pulmonary embolism. If I become hemodynamically unstable, 
right? So hypotensive, I start developing hypoxemia, I start having significant tachycardia, bradycardia, or a PEA arrest, something to that effect, we go immediately for things that are going to break up the clot. When you have a big clot, a huge clot burden, and you can't get blood out of your right heart and the patient becomes hypotensive, stopping the propagation or the further formation of the clot is not going to help. What you need to do is break that clot up immediately to recanalize the vessel. And so that's where we'll use thrombolytics. So we'll use things like Alteplase. All right. If the patient is hemodynamically stable, meaning that their clot burden isn't that big, that it's causing hypotension and right ventricular dysfunction, et cetera, then we don't need to immediately bust open the clot. In that situation, what we could do is just prevent the further propagation and formation of the clots, which could worsen their disease. And so what will we do? <laughs> we'll anticoagulate them with heparin. So low molecular weight or unfractionated, usually unfractionated is preferred. And then what we'll do is we'll bridge them into an oral anticoagulant like warfarin or a DOAC for a certain amount of time, depending upon how long they need to be anticoagulated, like three to six months or et cetera. But that's the way that we would perform that for a pulmonary embolism. One of the things I think is important though, is that patients who develop pulmonary embolisms or DVTs, if it's due to like a hypercoagulable condition, so let's like antiphospholipid syndrome, um, they actually have shown that maybe, um, uh, warfarin may be superior to DOAX for long-term management. So that's something to consider. And then if a patient develops a DVT or a PE due to cancer, um, it's actually been shown that low molecular weight heparin may be superior to unfractionated heparin. So it's just something to consider. But again, the concept here is that the same. You start them off with an anticoagulant heparin, one of those two, depending upon if they have cancer or not, low molecular weight heparin will be preferred. Then bridge them over to warfarin or a DOAC. Warfarin might be more preferred if the patient has a hypercoagulable condition like antiphospholipid syndrome. All right, we move into why would we use these drugs if they have peripheral vascular events? So they got a clot or they got like a plaque developing within their, you know, maybe within their femoral artery or their iliac vessel, and it's reducing blood flow to the legs. And whenever they walk around, they have this intense claudication or type of pain. Um, and, and those patients who have that, we could actually treat them with aspirin. So aspirin tends to be kind of like the preferred agent in this situation because it prevents atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease complications. And if they have an intolerance to aspirin, you can consider um, a P2Y12 receptor blocker as an alternative. So clopidogrel, you know, ticagrel or one of those two. Um, and then the other thing that we could add on is, remember I told you that random one, Rob, the PDE3 inhibitor? This is where it may be useful, celostazole, because it actually vasodilates and inhibits platelet aggregation. So you may get kind of a double benefit there, that if you have a patient on aspirin or a P2Y12 receptor blocker, and they're still having symptoms, you can potentially add on uh, celostazole as well in this situation. The next situation is what if they have a clot or a plaque within their uh, kind of iliac or femoral vessel, and then they rupture that plaque, and then they form a clot on top of that. So now they completely occlude their entire vessel going to their leg, and they develop with an acute limb ischemia. In those situations, we can actually kind of bridge now to an anticoagulant. Um, um, so generally, we can consider something like unfractionated heparin. And then generally what we'll do is the whole goal is you'll put them on unfractionated heparin to prevent the further propagation and development of the clot. And then your end goal is to go and revascularize that vessel. And so generally that's either surgery or that's sending like a catheter in there. And sometimes you can even do direct catheter directed what's called TPA into that vessel. But either way, you have to go in physically, whether it be through the vessel or opening them up and cut out that actual plaque and, and, and clot. Um, so that's going to be the thing that you use as a bridge to getting them to surgery, something like unfractionated heparin until they get revascularization of some type. 
The next thing is what if they have what's called carotid stenosis? So they have a big plaque within their carotid vessel that puts them at risk of a stroke. And that situation, generally, if they're symptomatic, they have severe kind of carotid stenosis, we'll do aspirin to prevent further kind of like propagation and formation of a clot on that plaque, um, aspirin or a P2Y12 receptor blocker. But if they have a stent placed, that's a little bit different. When they have the stent placed, you want to reduce the thrombosis of the stent. So you put them on aspirin and a P2Y12 receptor blocker for a certain amount of time. And then later, you'll just switch them over to only aspirin. Okay. So generally, that's what we prefer to utilize for carotid stenosis. The next thing is what if somebody has a clot within their leg? So they have a DVT. Now, this isn't in the arterial circulation. It's in the venous circulation. So if you have a clot within kind of the venous circulation, like a DVT, it puts you at high risk of that breaking off and causing a PE. So we should treat this very similarly to a PE um, in the sense that the more PE who are hemodynamically stable. So we treat it with an anticoagulant. You can do a heparin infusion, so unfractionator, low molecular weight heparin, and then bridge them over to a DOAC or warfarin for, again, a specific kind of like time frame that's dependent upon the clot burden that they have within their veins. Um, the next thing is we talked about, again, peripheral vascular events. We talked about cardiac events. We talked about neurological events. And again, we also talked about pulmonary events. What about gastrointestinal events? So what if somebody develops a clot within their um, mesenteric kind of vessels? So specifically within the arterial circulation of their mesenteric vessels. So if that happens, generally we treat it just like an acute limb ischemia. We start them on unfractionated heparin. So we put them on heparin of some type to prevent the further propagation development of clot within that vessel. But we have to either open them up and remove the clot in that vessel or send a catheter through that vessel. And then sometimes you can squirt some TPA in there or you can actually aspirate the clot out. But either way, you start off with anticoagulation and then bridge them to revascularization. The next thing is what if a patient has a thrombus within their mesenteric veins that's impairing the actual venous drainage and you know blood flow back through the liver and into the heart. And that situation will treat it just like a DVT. You treat mesenteric venous thrombosis just like a DVT. And these patients, what will you do? You'll put them on anticoagulation. Generally, that involves unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin. And then you'll bridge them to usually, here's what's weird, usually warfarin, not as much DOAX. Okay. So that's something that you want to remember for mesenteric venous thrombosis treated pretty much just like a DVT. The only thing that's different is you don't use DOAC. You primarily only use warfarin after the heparin bridge. All right, Rob, we're almost there. <laughs> the next thing is what if you have a patient who is bed bound, right? They just had a stroke or they had a surgery um, and they're going to be laying in bed for a long time. They're not getting out of bed. They're not ambulating. So now they're at risk for a DVT. And then subsequently that DVT can break off and cause a PE. So you want to prevent them from getting a DVT and subsequently a PE. So this is called VTE prophylaxis. In these situations, we prefer to use something like heparin and it's very low doses of heparin. So you use like unfractionated heparin, very low dose, but more preferably it might be like your low molecular weight heparin. And again, this is going to be the low doses of that as well. But again, that's low doses to really kind of like make sure that you prevent any further development or propagation of clots from forming. Because again, again, it can help inhibit clot formation, but it won't stop or break down the clot. So really what you're trying to do is prevent clot formation by giving these low doses of heparin. So that would be something to consider. 
The last thing I would actually mention for indications of these drug categories is if you're putting a patient on some type of large circuitry where blood is running out of their body through some type of like circuit and then putting back into their body through like tubing. So in other words, if someone's on what's called cardiopulmonary bypass or they're if one it's called a extracorporeal membrane oxygenation like ECMO, in those situations, you're at very high risk if you don't anticoagulate these patients to clot off their, their tubing, to clot off their catheters. And so that could completely throw off the entire circuitry from functioning. And so with those patients, you need to consider anticoagulation. Usually heparin is the most commonly utilized one because you can, you, you know, have a better monitoring of it, especially unfractionated heparin. So again, that would cover the indications, Rob, when we talk about the particular utilizations of these drug classes. I, I hope that I hope that made sense. No, it didn't make any sense at all. You have, to, <laughs> you have to redo that entire part. Go back. No, of course not. It made perfect sense. That was awesome. And there's a lot to remember. So that that was you know really well put together. I think what's really huge to understand though, as a future clinician or someone who is prescribing these medications, is what are the adverse effects? What can go wrong if I give too much or too little or just the wrong medication overall? Some bad side effects. What can go wrong with anticoagulants, antiplatelets, or thrombolytics? Zach, give it to me. All right. So when we talk about these, besides, you know, bleeding, which is a one that we'll talk about a little bit later. I think some of the kind of individualistic kind of like side effects or adverse effects to watch out for, especially with like some of these like aspirin is watch out for peptic ulcer disease. I mean, if a patient has peptic ulcer disease, this could definitely worsen it. Um, you're inhibiting the prostaglandin E2 production there. And so that could kind of lead to less mucus production within the kind of like the mucosa and then the more gastric acid kind of erosion there. So watch out for that. Um, Rye syndrome. This is definitely a boards one. You ever heard of this one, Rob? I have heard of Rye syndrome. Yeah, this is a, a pretty rare one, right? Oh, super rare. So usually it's in, you know, children less than 19 years of age who have like a viral infection and then, you know, their parents give them like aspirin or something like that. They can develop a, a significant like hepatic encephalopathy. Um, so then they develop a ton of ammonia within their blood and it can cause like cerebral edema, ultra mental status seizures can really be a disastrous kind of condition, but something to watch out for, especially it can cause like an anion gap metabolic acidosis as well. But that's one. I think another one, especially for your boards is watch out for that kind of like that, that Samter's triad kind of thing or patients who have like nasal polyps and sinusitis and asthma that if you give them aspirin, it could potentially worsen those like sinusitis and asthma. So watch out for that as well. I think the biggest one is if someone decides to take too much aspirin, I don't know, maybe they think that they're having a heart attack and they're like, oh my gosh, I need all the aspirin in the world to block, break up this clot, but they're, they're mistaken because it's not going to stop the clot from, you know, it's not going to ba basically break down the clot. But anyway, they take way too much aspirin. And when they do that, they start developing like a lot of like aspirin toxicity. Um, so it's important to know some of these signs, especially if the patients have got like hyperthermia. So they're just like cooking. Um, and then they have like other metabolic problems, especially something like an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Um, it can also cause like significant tachypnea. So it can actually trigger the brain to cause them to breathe really fast. So they can develop respiratory alkalosis. It can cause non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. It can cause like CNS dysfunction by causing like altered mental status seizures. Um, and it can really be like a disastrous thing. So usually when you see this, it's important to be able to catch it, give them a lot of fluids and generally kind of like alkalinize their, their blood is generally kind of like with bicarbonate may be potentially beneficial. Uh, but usually these patients, if they're that sick, they may require hemodialysis. But 
That's some of the things to watch out for with aspirin. The next one is the P2Y12 receptor blockers. I think the biggest thing to watch out for is just don't ever use teclopidine. <laughs> teclopidine is the devil. Um, it can cause something called uh, TTP. And with TTP, some of the big things that happens is kind of this teclopidine may generate autoantibodies. And what that may do is that may kind of like break down what's called this. It's this son of a gun called Adams. Uh, I think it's called Adam TS13, which is like this protein that basically breaks down von Willebrand's factor. So if you give teclopidine, it generates autoantibodies, breaks down atom uh, TS13, you don't break down the von Willebrand's factor. And so you have a lot of von Willebrand's factor to bind to platelets and it increases the risk of a lot of like microthrombi all over the place. And so you start consuming your platelets. So they can develop what's called a thrombocytopenia. A lot of the red blood cells just get destroyed as they run through these kind of like microthrombi. So they develop anemia, particularly hemolytic anemia. It also can cause like fevers and renal failure and neurological symptoms. I think the way that they remember this when I was in school was fat RN. <laughs> it's a terrible thing, but uh, fevers, anemia, uh, thrombocytopenia, renal failure, and neurological symptoms, like an altered mental status. Hey, whatever works, right? I know, whatever helps you to remember this. But generally, that's something to watch out for, especially with teclopidine. Uh, teclopidine can also kind of suppress your bone marrow. Um, so watch out for any kind of like, you know, neutropenia or, you know, sometimes it can even cause like um, anemia as well, generally. So just be careful. I think that's the big thing to watch out for with the kind of P2Y12 receptor blockers. Um, besides kind of the overarching theme that, again, bleeding is the complication from giving these medications. I think the real question here is, what's the worst drug, teclopidine or dopamine? <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. I think they're both equally the devil. <laughs> Stay away from both of them. But uh, the next one I think the thing about is the GP2B3A inhibitors or blockers. Um, really, the only kind of like abnormal thing with this is it can cause like acute profound uh, thrombocytopenia. So it can really drop your platelets. Like sometimes it can drop it to like less than 50,000, um, especially if it's within the time frame with like 12, 24 hours of receiving that drug is something to think about. So just be careful with that. Um, Solastazole, which is that PDE3 inhibitor, it can cause like headaches because it can dilate your cerebral vessels. Just don't give it in patients who have heart failure. It's been shown to cause an increased mortality. So don't do that. Um, the other one is kind of moving into your anticoagulant realm. So we talked about the antiplatelet agents. Now we're going to go into the anticoagulants. What are some things to watch out for with these? Unfractionated heparin and to a lesser degree, low molecular weight heparin can cause what's called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia hit. Um, I've seen this once. It's actually pretty like terrifying. But what happens is, is the patient receives heparin. They uh, bind to this thing called platelet factor four. And when it binds to platelet factor four, it actually triggers this kind of complex that activates the immune system. And the immune system starts making antibodies against that complex, IgG antibodies. They bind to the heparin and then the platelet factor four complex. And what that does is that then goes and binds onto platelets. And it kind of like tags the platelets and says, hey, platelets, I want you guys to go ahead and start clumping with one another now. And then all these platelets are kind of like sticking and sticking and sticking and clumping together. And they form this big kind of like platelet plug that they form in multiple vessels all over the entire body. And so they get these tons of microthrombi. And so this can form in the arteries and it can form in the veins. So if it formed in the arterial circulation, they can get an MI, they can get a stroke, right? They can even develop like an acute limb ischemia. If it develops in the veins, it can do a DVT, it can break off and cause a PE. So these are things to really be careful of. And then watch also... It can cause a lot of like necrosis of the skin right around where the kind of injection site is given, where they were given like the heparin. So those are things to think about with this disease. So, and then obviously thus the name heparin induced thrombocytopenia, it causes 
very cons- consistent like thrombocytopenia. So watch out for a patient who maybe is on heparin and their platelet count just acutely drops and then to develop any kind of arterial venous thrombi and kind of like a skin necrosis at the injection sites. Those are things that you can think about, especially unfractionated heparin more than low molecular weight heparin. So the question is, is if they need anticoagulation and they can't be on a DOAC yet, so I can't start them yet on like warfarin or I can't start them on like rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, what do I do? You give them the direct thrombin inhibitors that were IV. So those are the ones that actually we prefer to give in those particular situations. So discontinue the heparin, the low molecular weight unfractionated heparin, and then start them on something called bivalirudin or orgatroban. So those would be the preferred agents in that specific specific scenario. The other thing I think about is um, with uh, specifically low molecular weight heparin, watch out for this one. If patients do have renal failure, um, they will bank all of that low molecular weight heparin. So now instead of them excreting it, they're going to have way higher levels of low molecular weight heparin and they're at really high risk of bleeding. So just be careful of that. Be cognizant of that. If you're putting a patient on low molecular weight heparin and they have renal dysfunction, you need to renally dose it because they'll bank all of that drug and then they'll have high levels of that drug. So be careful. If that's the situation and you're renally dosing it and you don't feel comfortable, switch them over to unfractionated heparin if you need an infusion at that point in time because that one is not going to be as much renally cleared and it's not as dependent upon renal dysfunction. The next thing, what about the DOACs? All right, so my rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, my dabigatran, all those other guys. These ones, just be careful. Similar thing, renal failure. They are renally excreted. So if the patient does have renal dysfunction, they're not making much urine, they will bank a lot of that drug and increase the risk of bleeding. So in those situations, if they're on a DOAC and they have significant renal dysfunction, it may be better to switch over to another type of oral anticoagulant, such as warfarin. Okay. So that's important to be able to remember. All right. What about the last one we just talked about, warfarin? (laughs) So yes, in patients who have renal dysfunction who can't tolerate DOACs, maybe this would be a good drug, but there's a lot of downsides to warfarin. Some of the big things to watch out for if the patient is pregnant, do not give this drug. It's teratogenic, it crosses the placenta, and then cause fetal bleeding. Okay, that's a terrible thing to think about. The other thing is there's a lot of drug reactions. It is metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system. So anything that induces that is going to decrease the efficacy of the drug and increase the risk of the patient clotting. And anything that inhibits the CYP450 system is going to increase the concentration of warfarin and then increase the risk of potentially causing bleeding. So super scary thing. So there's a lot of drugs that could potentially interact with warfarin. So you got to be careful of that. The other thing, especially for your pores, my friends, perk those ears up, is warfarin-induced skin necrosis. Can't say I've ever seen this, but one of the things that can happen is that whenever you start a patient on warfarin without bridging them with heparin, um, usually what happens is with warfarin, they deplete, again, your factors 2, 7, 9, 10, C, and S. So protein C and S are anticoagulants. Factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 are procoagulants. So if you're blocking procoagulants, you're basically preventing them from, again, forming clots. But if you block anticoagulants, now you have the increased risk of them potentially causing clots. And so what happens is whenever you start warfarin, you actually drop down your protein C and S level quickly. And actually, this can lead to a loss of anticoagulant effect. And so now you can actually have increased risk of clotting formation, especially within the kind of like the cutaneous circulation, and it can cause necrosis of the skin. So watch out for that. You usually see that in the first couple of days of starting warfarin. So generally what we prefer to do is get the patient kind of like bridged with anticoagulants like heparin. Once you kind of get them anticoagulated, then you start them on warfarin because then you can bridge them through that time period where they're a little bit more hypercoagulable. But that's something to consider as well. 
What about thrombolytics? So again, besides this one being the highest risk of bleeding. So anytime you give altoplace, synectoplace, retoplace, streptokinase, urokinase, they are a high risk of bleeding because you're breaking down clot. And that could be super disastrous because you're basically kind of dissolving the clot and also potentially preventing any formation of clots. So that could be super disastrous. We'll talk about that kind of coagulopathy or bleeding in a second. But another thing, I've actually only seen it once. Patient came in, had an acute ischemic stroke. They got TPA and they developed angioedema. So they developed significant swelling of their tongue, their lips, and then their larynx. And it kind of led to an obstruction of their airway. And so with that being said, that's one of the kind of like interesting causes or adverse effects that you can see with some of the thrombolytics. But that would cover kind of like these interesting types of complications or adverse effects or things to watch out for with these drugs, Rob. We're now going to move into the final part of this episode. We're almost there, Ninja Nerds. Hang on. We're almost <laughs> done. I promise. We got to talk now about complications of these medications because there's a lot and, it, and it's important, right? We got to go over this. Now, why, why can these complications happen? I need this medication because I have a clot in my coronary vessel, but then I can't move my left side and I'm drooling oh, because geez. I end up with a huge ICH. <laughs> there's so much conflicting things that could happen and, and there's a lot going on. How, there, there has to be. Please, God, tell me there's a way we can monitor these medications. I, you, you know the answer. We, of course we can. All right. We're not just going to blindly give these medications. Exactly. We've got to be able to monitor them. Um, and, it's, and it's crucial that we do. So, Zach... Tell us a little bit about how do we monitor the levels of, let's just say, heparin or, or warfarin or things like that. Yeah, that's that's a great co- a question. And I think a very common complication. I, I Since I work in a neuro ICU, I see these complications very frequently um, where a patient is on anticoagulation because they have AFib and you want to prevent them from getting a stroke or they have you know, a PE and you're anticoagulating them with heparin. And then again, whenever they're on these medications, they are at high risk potentially for bleeding. That's the most common complication. Sometimes the bleeding can be very mild where it could just be, they get a little bit of petechial lesions or purperic lesions, or maybe they have a little bit of ecchymosis, or maybe they have like, whenever you have like a minor cut or wound, or you're going to put an IV in them or whatever, they just bleed a little bit longer. Or maybe they have like a little bit of blood around a joint because they fell down and hit their leg. These are minor kind of complications. The worrisome ones, the ones that are actually life-threatening and scary is where a patient develops a hemorrhagic stroke where they bleed into their brain or they develop a massive GI bleed where blood is just pumping through their large intestine and out into the toilet or their small intestine or they have a bleed that's kind of like just pushing and socking right down into their retroperitoneum. So they get a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. With these patients, maybe they're at risk of hemorrhagic shock or terrible, like increasing intracranial pressure because of a bleed. These are life-threatening and a potential complication. So I think one of the biggest things is as a future clinician out there, or those who are going to be prescribing these medications, you have to be aware that these are complications and how do I actually do my best to make sure that I'm monitoring this and dosing the drug appropriately? Well, knowing the adverse effects is obviously crucial. So that was what we talked about, but I think knowing levels could be potentially beneficial. So for example, if I have to put a patient on unfractionated heparin because they develop a PE or because they have atrial fibrillation or because they have a left ventricular thrombus or whatever, I'm putting them on that medication to prevent or that clot from being formed within those vessels. 
I should monitor a particular level to make sure that I'm therapeutic. So I'm actually helping to prevent the propagation formation of the clot, but I'm not having it be too high where I'm increasing the risk of bleeding in other areas of the body. But I'm not too low that I'm not actually continuously not helping to stop the clot formation. So I utilize something called the PTT. And the PTT is going to be helping us to monitor what levels, what are the numbers that we're aiming for to keep this actual heparin dose therapeutic without being sub or super therapeutic. In other words, preventing them from forming more clots or preventing them from bleeding. All right. So that's important. So unfractionated heparin, you monitor that with what's called the PTT lab value. And the numbers that you aim for depends upon what type of disease you're treating. So sometimes you may have to anticoagulate somebody to a higher level for a PE, whereas you may require lower levels for something like a stroke. So it's important to be able to consider that. The next thing is what about other drugs? So low molecular weight heparin. Fonda Paranox, Rob's favorite, which is the factor 10 inhibitors. What about those? Believe it or not, there's not a ton of evidence out there for these, but if you think about their mechanism of action, what may be potentially beneficial is think about how they work. Low molecular heparin and Fonda Paranox activate antithrombin 3, which inhibits factor 10. And then factor 10A inhibitors block factor 10. So wouldn't it be cool if I had a level that I could actually check what's called the anti-XA level or anti-10A level? That's what we could potentially use. So if a patient is actually on low molecular heparin, Fonda Paranox, or 10A inhibitors, you could potentially consider checking those levels. It's just not very common. We don't often do that unless there's a primary reason. So you have concerns that they're at high risk of bleeding. They have renal dysfunction and they're not clearing these drugs very well. Those may be indications, okay? Dabigatran is another one. Dabigatran doesn't really have any special type of test. It may affect the PTT, um, but one of the primary tests that we can potentially use is what's called the thrombin time. So if a patient is on dabigatran, which is one of those direct thrombin inhibitors, it may be beneficial to monitor what's called their thrombin time. The other thing, and here's the big one, my friends, because this is the one that has the highest risk of bleeding out of all the anticoagulants. Um, it's warfarin. So warfarin is really has a very narrow therapeutic window. Um, oftentimes the therapeutic window that we aim for is we use something called INR, international normalized ratio. And we look at this based upon the patient's PT level. So we look at their PT and then off the PT that they have in comparison to the PT levels within the standard population around them, we extrapolate a ratio. And that ratio that you want to maintain to prevent a patient from clotting or bleeding is two to three. That's super narrow. If I'm less than two, they have risk of clotting. If I'm greater than three, they have risk of bleeding. So I have to maintain that INR and I have to frequently check it. And that's one of the downsides about this drug is that it requires a lot of frequent monitoring. And guess what? A lot of drugs can alter the level of warfarin that we talked about. And so can your diet. So if a patient's not getting enough like vegetables or not getting enough vitamin K in their diet, that can also alter their level. If they're getting too much vitamin K, that can also alter their levels. And so it's super, super important to remember that a lot of things can alter their warfarin levels. And then it becomes even more complex, Zach. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, that 
warfarin, it could also change the, the levels that you're looking at based upon a disease process, right? Like a, like a mechanical valve or something like that. Exactly. You Sometimes you actually may aim for higher INR levels, um, particularly from mechanical heart valves. Sometimes they're not allowing for a two to three. You might actually want 2.5 to 3.5. So again, it's important to be able to remember that. So that's one of the big things. So unfractionated heparin, I think, is the most important one with PTT, warfarin, INR. Low molecular weight heparin, Fonda Paranox, and um, the 10A inhibitors, you can consider checking an anti-10A level. Dabigatran thrombin time is considered. The last one is TPA. I don't really think there's a true test that you can monitor, but if you think about what TPA actually does, it breaks down fibrin and also potentially fibrinogen. So sometimes you're consuming and consuming a lot of fibrinogen to be able to make more fibrin when you break it down. And so this can, can potentially deplete your fibrinogen levels. So after you give TPA, it's important really to look for any evidence of bleeding, but you could potentially consider if you really are concerned that the patient has a high risk of bleeding, you could trend their fibrinogen levels and consider checking that as well. But that would be what you're kind of doing to monitor. If you guys noticed, I didn't mention any kind of level for um, Argatraban. Um, I didn't mention any level for um, um, Bivalarudin because there is no true test that really monitors those. And then I didn't mention anything for aspirin or any of the antiplatelet medications because there really is no true tests that look at antiplatelet function for those. There is some newer tests like platelet you know, mapping and thromboelastography and stuff like that, but it's just not kind of the evidence isn't really there to truly kind of monitor antiplatelet levels. So that's an important thing to think about. The last thing is if a patient ends up on an anticoagulant or, uh, you know, a thrombolytic and they start bleeding. So they're on it. Like Rob said, maybe Rob's on a medication. He's on heparin. No, no, don't use me as an example. <laughs> do, do not. All right. All right. Patient X. Patient X is on heparin because they have, you know, some type of AFib, right? And then from anticoagulating them for their AFib, they end up developing an intracranial hemorrhage. What do we do now? Because we let's say that we were monitoring their PTT. And even though we were monitoring their PTT levels, they still bled. And that's the other thing. Just because you monitor the levels doesn't mean that the patient won't still develop complications. That's super important. But it is more common if their levels are out of whack or super therapeutic. But nonetheless, let's say that they, they, they didn't keep track of the PTT levels for the heparin. Patient's PTT levels were through the roof and then they bled. As a result, what am I going to do to try to reverse the continual effects of the heparin or reverse the continual effects of whatever the anticoagulant is and prevent further bleeding into their brain or further bleeding into their GIT or further bleeding into their abdomen? What do I do in those particular situations? So that's where we use reversal agents. So antiplatelets, there's a lot of things out there which potentially say that desmopressin may be beneficial. And really all it's doing is increasing the function of desmopressin. I mean, uh, desmopressin increases the function of platelets. So it may make them a little bit more like willing to potentially stick with one another, all right, to help to promote a clot. Because right now the patient's bleeding, you kind of want to initiate the clot formation. Another thing is heparin. Heparin, the uh, reversal agent for this is what's called protamine sulfate. I've given this a couple times. It definitely is a little bit of a nerve wracking drug to give. Um, DOAX, so your 10A inhibitors, with these, with rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, there is the drug called Andexanet Alpha, um, which you could consider. It's just super expensive. Um, an alternative to that is just giving something called uh, four-factor PCC, prothrombin complex concentrate. Um, that might be an option as well. 
Um, the other thing is the thrombin inhibitor. So dabigatran, this is a high yield one. Please don't forget this one. You'll get this on your exam. Idarikizumab is the reversal agent for dabigatran. Okay. For the other ones, which is bivalarudin, um, argatroban, there really is no true reversal agent. It might be the same as your 10A inhibitors. So giving them prothrombin complex concentrate or the four factor PCC might be the only thing that's truly beneficial. Oh, one more fact here. I got one of my um, attendings told me this once is that whenever a patient is on one of the DOACs, so if they're on 10 A inhibitors or the thrombin inhibitors, the only one if a patient is on hemodialysis that you can actually clear and remove from the body is dabigatran. All the other ones will not be cleared effectively via hemodialysis. That might be a question that you may potentially see. All right. So we talked about antiplatelets considered desmopressin, heparin, protamine sulfate, 10 A inhibitors, and dexanet alpha, if not four-factor PCC, for dabigatran, idarikizumab, only one cleared by hemodialysis, and then for bivalirudin, argatroban, four-factor PCC. What about warfarin? For warfarin, it's IV vitamin K and four-factor PCC. I can't stress how important it is to give the vitamin K. The vitamin K will work, it'll take some time to kick in. So when you give the IV vitamin K, you're basically trying to get vitamin K into form more of those factors 2, 7, 9, 10, C, and S right? But it's going to take some hours, maybe up to like 24 hours for it to truly be effective. So during that time, you need to immediately replenish those factors that warfarin depleted. So you give them four-factor PCC because that contains things like two, seven, nine, and 10. Thus the name four-factor PCC. When you give that, you give two, seven, nine, and 10 as the actual, like the drug there. All right. So again, if the patient's bleeding, give them IV vitamin K and then start giving them four factor PCC. That leads to the last one, Rob. What if you give a patient, they come in and I've seen this, unfortunately, sadly, they come in, they have an acute ischemic stroke and they get TPA because they have an acute ischemic stroke and they bleed massively into the infarct bed. Um, sometimes that can happen in those situations, especially if the infarct becomes significant, it happens within a particular time frame. I can reverse the continual effects of the TPA to prevent further hemorrhage within their brain. And so that's where you can use something called tranexamic acid. Um, and generally what that does is that inhibits the plasminogen from being activated into plasmin. And so I won't break down any more of the fibrin and I'll help to stabilize that fibrin mesh a little bit more. And then on top of that, since I'm actually preventing them from further breaking down fibrin, I should actually also consider replacing the fibrinogen that I'm also depleting with TPA. And so you can give them something called cryoprecipitate, which all the cryoprecipitate is, is fibrinogen. So when a patient gets TPA and you're going to reverse them, you give them tranexamic acid, also known as TXA, and fibrinogen to, again, replete the fibrinogen levels that are getting depleted with the TPA. But that covers all the things that we need to know about anticoagulants, antiplatelets, and thrombolytics, Rob. That wasn't too, too bad. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're closing in on about an hour and 15 here, but really not as, as horrible as we made it out to be. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I hope it actually helped and made sense, though. Yeah. But, that, but that'll do it for this episode. Zach, any closing remarks here? No, I think uh, what we said throughout this podcast, I think is, you know, important to get the notes, get the illustrations. I can't stress it enough. We hit so much information. So a lot of this stuff could potentially just fly right over the head. Definitely would for me. So I think get the notes, get the illustrations, maybe go back, listen to the podcast again, and really try to get the big points, which is where do these drugs specifically work in the hemostasis pathway? Think about 
how am I utilizing multiple aspects of these drugs and many different indications? And again, when it comes down to the adverse reactions, the most concerning one is bleeding. Being able to know which labs to monitor the levels of these drugs and knowing what is the reversal agent to prevent the continuous progression of bleeding, I think is crucial in understanding how to potentially reduce mortality in these patients' lives. But Ninjaners, I hope that made sense. I hope that you guys enjoyed this one and liked it. And as always, thank you, love you, and until next time.